Good evening. Wisdom Eccentrics by Natchan Rinpoche, Chapter 38, Part 2. When Chagdur Rinpoche heard the punchline, he roared with laughter and made his reassessment of me at the same time. The next time I saw Chagdur Rinpoche was at the Mondavi Winery in California where a charity luncheon had been arranged by Mr Mondavi in order to raise funds for Chagdud Gompa. I went with Tarchin Rinpoche and two of his senior students. It was a curious event, extremely pleasant, but almost none of the prospective sponsors were Buddhist. This led to some lively conversations in which I tried to make myself useful in providing information. I tend to find wealth far stranger than the relative poverty of India and Nepal, so it proved a practice in feeling normal. I was relaxed enough, although it all felt like a dream. Suddenly, however, I understood why Chimi Rigsin Rinpoche never did anything to endear himself to wealthy people. I am sure that all wealthy people are not self-possessed to the point of self-satisfaction, but it seemed to me that being rich could be as much a handicap as being poor in terms of accessing the essence of Dharma. Everyone meant very well and everyone was extremely charming, but the Bob Dylan line sprang to mind. When you ain't got nothing, you've got nothing to lose. Yes, that's why Kunzangdor Jerimpshe never stayed anywhere long and why he never encouraged sponsors. I went back to Pema Ursulling with Tarchin Rinpoche and we made momos together. I was impressed by his culinary skills. He made two in the time it took me to make one and his were all perfectly shaped. Pema Ursuling was much more my kind of environment than the Mondavi winery, even though I enjoyed myself there. We sat up late telling tales of Nepal and India. Tarchin Rinpoche gave me many valuable insights into the Gurkachanglo tradition, answers to questions for which time had run out with Kunzangdorje Rinpoche. Tarchin Rinpoche came to visit us in Cardiff in 1995 and gave a series of teachings. It was a great pleasure to see Tarchin Rinpoche in our living room in Penarth with our Gokachanglo students, Rigsin, Nordsin and Erdsin, Pema Zangmo and Ernie. Tarchin Rinpoche settled into an armchair when he arrived and we prepared dinner. Whilst taking his ease, he found a handgun magazine in the rack and began perusing it avidly. It was at this point that we found Tarchin Rinpoche in discussion with Rigsin Dorje. I have like this, he commented with a smile, but I don't tell people because Americans don't like guns. Rigsin laughed. You know the wrong Americans, Rinpoche. A funny moment. Kandro Dechen and I showed Tarchin Rinpoche our guns, a Colt Python and a Smith & Wesson. Tarchin Rinpoche was delighted to see them 
and said that it was a shame that there was no time to go to the shooting range on this visit. That problem can be solved, I suggested. We also have a Brocock air revolver and we can shoot in the garden. Tarchin Rimshe agreed with enthusiasm and we spent the hour before dinner target shooting. Tarchin Rimshe proved to be an excellent shot. He told us about his father, Sheriff Dorje Rimshe, who'd always carried a rifle like Dokyense. He told us that he would cure people of illnesses by shooting them. The bullet would apparently disintegrate like mercury on hitting the sick person and they'd recover pretty damn quick from whatever it was that ailed them. Tarchin Rimshe told many stories whilst he was with us and I was extremely glad that our students had this opportunity to catch a glimpse of the Gurkha Chamlo world as it was in old Tibet. Tarchin Rimshe gave teachings on the seven-line song of Padmasambhava and spoke of how it could be taken as one's sole practice. It contained all levels of practice within itself. I'd made this comment in the past, but it had been met with some suspicion in certain quarters. But on hearing Tarchin Rimshe speak of it in the same way, it was suddenly quite acceptable to those who'd previously been suspicious. Tarchin Rinpoche laughed when I mentioned this to him and said, Yeah, racial prejudice in every direction going. One time at Pema Ursaling, Dungse Trinli Norbu Rinpoche is saying, What difference between Tibetan Lama and Western Lama? Tibetan Lama having flat nose and Western Lama having rocky mountain nose. What is important is Dharma and whether people know Dharma or not. It was after that event that Tarchin Rinpoche told my students that they should call me Rinpoche and that I should be known as Nakchang Rinpoche rather than Nakpachurgyam. That was somewhat startling. Rinpoche as a form of address had always been what I had used in respect of my lamas. So to hear students addressing me in that way took some acclimatisation. I continued to use Nakpachurgyam on my books because changing names seemed ungainly and, after all, I am a Nakpa. I have great respect for Tarchin Rinpoche and so I made no objection to the name change. I had some vague sense of why he advised it. And so to have made an unseemly, humile fuss would have been to have acted like a tomyol. Of course, much unseemly fuss was made in certain quarters, but I rode that as I seem to have ridden many things, of which the best is my horse. Kanrod Aichen rode horses as a child, but I came to it late in life. I remembered what Kunzang Dorje Rinpoche had said about the importance of firearms for the Gurkha Changlo day and also about my needing to be a rider. Obtaining revolvers was not easy, but neither was it that difficult. Horses, on the other hand, proved a considerable challenge. They came eventually, however, 
when Tarchin Rinpoche told us a story about Kyabje Dujum Rinpoche. One of his students had asked Kyabje Dujum Rinpoche if there were hidden lands of Padmasambhava in the United States. And he'd answered, bring me a map. A map was duly brought forth and laid out for view. Here and also here, Kyabje Dujum Rinpoche pronounced pointing to an area of Oregon and to the northwest of Montana. That was the turning point for us. It was no longer possible to take off for many months at a time to make pilgrimages to the hidden lands in Tibet and Bhutan. And so the idea of a hidden land in a place that was easily accessible was a massive inspiration. This, however, marked the juncture where I had to learn to ride. The hidden land of northwest Montana would best be explored on horseback. This is not the place to provide an account of my equestrian training. Suffice it to say that I discovered that I was still a Tomyol. After having spent two years learning to canter, I asked my riding teacher, Melissa Troop, whether she'd be absolutely honest and direct with me if I asked a question about my riding. Melissa said that she would, and so I proceeded. Am I the slowest person you've ever taught? Yes, she replied after brief reflection, but you're also the most persistent and that will pay off later because of all the work you've put in. You now have a solid foundation which will serve you well for jumping. That's where we're going next. That was a proud moment because persistence is the only personal attribute I can acknowledge. I may be a Tomyol, but I'm a relentless Tomyol. It's my hope that other Tom yours out there may be encouraged by that. I firmly believe that if a person persists, almost anything is possible. Target shooting came more naturally to me than horse riding. But Tarchin Rinpoche was right about Americans not liking guns. Well, American Buddhists, that is. On one of my early teaching retreats at Pema Ursuling, I happened to give an explanation concerning silent sitting. I used handgun target practice as an example of awareness and presence, and several people began to look edgy. Why would a Lama want to shoot guns? Guns are violent instruments of death. I decided not to validate my interest by speaking of Dokienza Yeshe Dorji, but rather to approach the thing directly in terms of principle and function. From the point of view of Dharma, guns cannot be considered as violent in themselves. Guns are metal objects which, in themselves, are devoid of intentionality. The intention of the invention lies with the inventor who designed the gun. 
but neither inventors nor manufacturers can imbue guns with the intention to kill. I'll take myself as an example. I have no desire to kill anything more than a tin can or a target. So for me, it's a peacefully pleasurable device which I employ as an aspect of meditation practice. For a gun to be intrinsically violent, it would have to have been a fabrication within a Judeo-Christian vision of reality, where it would be designated as the work of the devil. Lacking God as the uncreated creator and lacking his antithesis, Satan, we're left with a world of objects that are innocent of our projections. What we are looking at really is a perceptual hangover from a philosophical framework that, in some important respects, is entirely different from Dharma. They listened politely, begrudgingly accepting my explanation whilst fidgeting uncomfortably. It was apparent that they'd rather that I loathed guns as much as they did. It was almost as if I were some clever lawyer who secured the release of a major criminal on some technicality. I tried another approach. What about Zen and the art of archery? I asked. Oh, that was fine. That was completely peaceful. Right, I grinned, and I suppose they were all just practising that peaceful art at Agincourt. You know, the bow is a fine instrument of war. It's also an excellent weapon for an assassin, as it's more or less silent. After some further discussion of intention and motivation being the central point within Buddhism, they conceded with good grace, and I caused them all to laugh by asking, Anyway, I paused, drawing attention to my naked upper limbs. Have you never heard of the Buddhist right to bear arms? I believe it's the Second Amendment in the American Constitution. The peak point of this period of time was a wonderfully unexpected meeting. It was brought about by an unlikely assortment of causes, the first being the Conference of Western Buddhist Teachers and the unseemly brouhaha made concerning the role of the Vajramaster. I'd written to our students about this in a yearly dispatch called the Vajra Letter. Sometime later, Shardrol wrote to me with an email address of a certain Sangye Kandro, who was asking for anyone who wanted to write in defence of the Vajramaster. Well, that was not difficult, so I sent her a section from the Vajra letter in question. This is a condensed version. We have no issue with the fact that the Vajra master role may be a difficult paradigm for the West. But if one is to practice Vajrayana, one has to encounter the Vajra master in a personally meaningful way. 
We have some sympathy for those who are attempting to deal with the cultural mismatches which occur between the cultural forms of Eastern and Western countries. But these are early days and we need to proceed with great care and respect for tradition. We are concerned with defining cultural Vajrayana as distinct from essential Vajrayana, but not by removing essential mechanisms from the vehicle. Petrol, gasoline, may well be dermatologically harmful, but without it one's Harley-Davidson can only roll down convenient hills. A vehicle can be stripped down to expose its engine in the creation of a dragster. But if working parts of the engine are removed, even the most fabulous Rolls-Royce will not serve its intended purpose. Now, what neither Chardreau nor I realised was that this request from Sangye Kandro was a private letter to friends which had been inadvertently posted in a public forum. I had no idea that there was any connection with a particular Lama. So I was surprised when I received a letter from Sangye Kandro telling me that Dungse Trinni Norbu Rinpoche had liked what I would written and wanted to speak with me. I was, of course, amazed that Dungse Trinni Norbu Rinpoche should find anything in my words that was worthy of his attention and rather overwhelmed when the telephone call was set up. We spoke and I was overwhelmed in some other way again because he spoke with me completely cordially. His responses and questions had the character of speaking with me as if we were on equal terms. I simply tried not to be too much of a tomule. Some time went by and I was invited to visit with Dungzi Trini Norba Rinpoche. A date was arranged and I went with Kandra Dechen and our students Yeshe and Shadro. I shall give no account of our discussion in respect for Rinpoche's privacy. Suffice it to say it was one of the most memorable events of my life. Dungzi Trini Norba Rinpoche gave Kandra Dechen and myself Gurkha Changlo shawls as a parting gift, and we have remembered the day ever since. I wore the shawl that Kyabje Dujam Rimshe gave me on that occasion, because he was Dungzi Trini Norba Rimshe's father, and I felt it was propitious. I told Dungzi Trini Norba Rimshe about the shawl and about the promise I made to his father to preserve the Gurkha Changlo day in the east and to establish it in the West. Dungzi Trini Norba Rinpoche seemed pleased by this and smiled on our endeavour. This period of meeting with Lamas sparkled with accidental meetings, mainly in Nepal, where I met Lama Chukyi Wanchuk Rinpoche, but also in New York, where I met Lopon Ergin Tenzin, Lopon is a Tibetan Lama of my age who also made a promise to Dujam Rinpoche to propagate and preserve the Gurkha Changlo Day. We have worked to establish a Gurkha Changlo orphanage school in Pemaka 
and we are now involved with efforts to keep that school running. It's not quite time for me to die yet, but I now feel as if my promise has been kept to the point that it will continue to unfold, either with me or without me.